Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 20. After Hours with Terry Linville. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, and is therefore an after-hours episode. This episode follows nicely on from Tuesday's episode with the guys from The Catholic Man Show, where we discuss letter 11 of the Screwtape Letters, which relates entirely to the subject of laughter. And today, I'm interviewing the author of Surprised by Laughter, Terry Linville. Terry Linville is the elder twin born in Basel, Switzerland, and wandered about the world with his family as his father was an army chaplain. Educated at Vanguard University in literature and biology, he stumbled into Fuller Theological Seminary and then fell into the University of Southern California, studying theology and communication, respectively. He has taught at Azusa Pacific University, Wheaton College, Regent University, Duke Divinity School, the College of William & Mary, and is presently ensconced in the C.S. Lewis Chair of Communication and Christian Thought at Virginia Wesleyan University. He is the author of a number of books on cinema, as well as God Mocks, A History of Religious Satire, From the Hebrew Prophets to Stephen Colbert, and Surprised by Laughter, The Comic World of C.S. Lewis. He has been married to Karen for over 35 years, and they have two children, Chris, a comedy writer in Los Angeles, and Caroline, a 7th grade English teacher in Virginia Beach. His wife likes walks on the beach, a fine wine, and churches. He follows her obediently. He aspires to be one of the last patriarchs of this generation, but doesn't have the alpha male zest. Unfortunately, he read too much Edgar Allan Poe as a child, and now his writing is heavy with adjectives. He should have read more Emily Dickinson. Dr. Linville, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thanks, David. After Hours actually sounds like the pubs have closed. Exactly. It's a lock-in. And please call me Terry. Please call me Terry. My students, I forced to call me Dr. Linville, professor, but you may call me Terry. Excellent stuff. Well, Terry, before we go any further with this interview, we need to make sure that you're the real deal. You know, you've written books about laughter, you know, sure, that shows that you're an academic and that you can write, but are you practical? So, tell us a joke. Well, first, I would remind you and the audience that about 80% of laughter comes from sources other than jokes. Um, secondly, around 66% of statistics are made up. <laughs> um, you know, as Mark Twain once quipped, there are three kinds of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Uh, and so I stayed out of that. But from, from one of my more recent books, Old Men of the Bible, kind of, uh, we're not getting better, we're getting older. Uh, there was an old Yiddish joke that just really has always captured my imagination. And uh, it's about Abraham and Sarah. And they've, of course, been promised a child for many years. And now they've reached the old, wrinkly, saggy, saggy age of 90 and 100, um, kind of respectively. And so after kind of a few detours, remember, Abimelech, King, Abraham goes and he says, take my wife, please. And then Hagar, who basically sings, I'm just a gal who can't say no. Abraham finally comes home and he announces, he goes, Sarah, Sarah, we faithfully waited so long that tonight God has promised us super sex. And Sarah looks at him and goes, at your age, take the soup. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> you proved your qualifications. Well, let's get on and do some housekeeping then. Uh, the quote for today's episode comes from the Screwtape Letters, and it is one of the very truthful things that Screwtape says. Englishmen take their sense of humor so seriously that a deficiency in this sense is almost the only deficiency at which they feel shame. Very true. Now, the next thing is our drink of the week, and today it's a cup of Scottish breakfast tea. I had never had Scottish breakfast tea until yesterday. Uh, it's a little stronger than English. It's a little bit more floral than Irish, uh, but it's a Monday, so I figured I, I needed I needed something to get me into gear today. Well, I've had a little bit of lemon squash, and lemon squash is what Lewis says as a child he really loved. And so the fact that we lose our taste sometimes for lemon squash or childish things is something we must be aware of. And in fact, it kind of connects with a book my daughter and I wrote when she was about 12. And we kind of corresponded. I said, what are you afraid of losing? And she says, I'm afraid of losing my laugh. And so we wrote a little book called The Girl Who Couldn't Laugh. And uh, it's just this really kind of father-daughter thing. But it reminds me of lemon squash. So toast. Cheers. Cheers. So, Terry, can you just situate us? Can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to be interested in Lewis and laughter? Well, I was part of a peripatetic family that wandered around the world and uh, ended up at Vanguard University, where I first began to read C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, but it didn't hold. It didn't, didn't strike me as anything. Uh, then a friend of mine persuaded me not to go to graduate study in biochemistry, but to go to Fuller Theological Seminary. So I went up to Pasadena, California, and I enrolled in there in 1970. And I began to read a lot more Lewis, particularly Screwtape Letters, and it began to kind of touch those kind of comic elements uh, in me. But finally, I entered the PhD program at the University of Southern California. And I took a class with Dr. Walt Fisher, and it was on historical critical research methods, which will put anybody to sleep. <laughs> everyone had to choose a topic. And I had no idea. I was just enjoying myself as kind of a USC Trojan following our football team, which had a team back then. Um, and then I chose almost haphazardly or more even serendipitously to look at a theory of communication in the writings of C.S. Lewis. And so I read and reread all of his corpus that was available at the time um, for the next five years and wrote my 600-page tome that my next-door neighbor, Louise, an elderly woman would type for me. And this was before computers. And so, I mean, if I made a mistake, she had to go back and type whole sections. It was just amazing of typing there. But um, I finished my dissertation on, on Lewis and communication. And then I, I went and taught Azusa Pacific and then Regent. And I took a sabbatical to Oxford in the fall of about 1984. And I stayed at the Kilns with Michael Perret. Michael Perret became the university chaplain of the University of Oxford. And uh, we would kind of, I would go to the Bodleian in the day and kind of read and research and everything else. And then at night we'd have our wine uh, that was there. And my wife joined me, Karen, she joined me about halfway through the sabbatical. And so we would sleep in a single bed in the room that Lewis died in. And uh, I would read Eros from the Four Loves to her. And she found it really creepy. It was a <laughs> long time for us to have children <laughs> that was there. But the, the, the state of the kilns at that time was just really unkempt. It was like Care Paravelle uh, during Prince Caspian. I mean, every you couldn't recognize everything. The windows were broken. There was ivy growing in, pigeons in the house. Um, it, was, it was just alive, but it was just something I had a feeling of the wildness 
of, of uh, Headington at that time. And so I ended up getting fired from Regent University for challenging the chancellor and uh, ended up at Duke for a while, then William Mary, and finally in a little university about 10 miles from our house here in Virginia Beach, uh, they offered me kind of a chair and they called it the C.S. Lewis chair. And so I've been taking young life kids to Oxford almost every other year uh, with their way paid. And we just immerse ourselves in everything English uh, over there. So that's kind of my background. But now I'm a, I'm a film professor primarily. Uh, and so it's very interesting that I kind of dabble over here in uh, Lewis. Wonderful. Well, you mentioned the Screwtape Letters earlier. And as I said at the beginning, on Tuesday, we went through Letter 11, which is where Screwtape really unpacks his, his, his grand unifying theory of laughter, identifying the kinds of laughter as joy, fun, the joke proper, and flippancy. Let's start there because these distinctions are what you ultimately use in your book, Surprised by Laughter. So what do you make of this letter? Uh, it, it's very interesting because it is placed almost in the, the middle of a discussion, the previous letter, about worldliness. And, and one of the signs of worldliness essentially is flippancy. Uh, it is, we are in a culture that likes to laugh. We like to be amused. As Neil Postman says, the, the meaning of the word amusement comes from A, meaning not, and muse inspiration. And so there is no inspiration when we watch television, but we look for the cheap laugh. And I think this is something Lewis was prescient on. I mean, he just saw that our culture was moving in, in at this time towards that area. But I, I want to say kind of a thank you to kind of Paul McCusker. Uh, Paul, who did the annotated version, I mean, just a wonderful thing. And he really points out how Lewis is luring the reader into serious themes under the guise of a joke. Uh, it, it's just something that is, is sneaky and, and um, wonderfully uh, cryptic that's going here. But as we go, I, I remember Wind of the Willows, uh, one of the first thing the mole says when he starts out is, up we go, up we go. And so I started reading um, this, this whole letter, and it, it gave me a different perspective. My dissertation on communication only had two paragraphs about humor. But I came back to this letter, and I just began to breathe this letter. And this was way before Andy Serkis or John Cleese did their wonderful recordings of the level letter. But what was really important was right at the beginning in the preface, uh, Lewis identified something that really stuck with me when he wrote, for humor involves a sense of proportion and a power of seeing yourself from the outside. Whatever else we may attribute to beings who sin through pride, we must not attribute this. Satan, said Chesterton, fell through a force of gravity. We must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment, in short, a faculty meeting. So uh, we, we find that all of this seriousness, and I always had kind of a comic vein that could see kind of the humor in anything that was going on. And this got me into trouble with my mouth uh, later on. But when I began to, to look at this, I thought, what is there about laughter that really is something that defines our culture and defines every culture? Um, what, what a man or a woman laughs at really shows something about who they are inside. And so I looked at what I laughed and didn't like what I saw all the time, because I will laugh at almost anything and things I probably shouldn't laugh at. But this, this whole letter got me into that. 
And so, as you mentioned, I mean, these four categories, we can get to each one in a while, but each one had something to say to me. And I, I wanted to kind of share what Lewis said throughout all of his works in that book. That preface that you quoted, it, I was also put in mind of when I when I was reading this, because it, it shows that humor, at least certain kinds of humor, requires a little bit of humility, because it means that you have to be able to go out of yourself and look at just quite how ridiculous you are currently being, and then you can laugh. If you can't do that, if you're serious in such a way that you always care about your personal dignity, you're not going to laugh. It, it, it's honor, honor-based cultures, I think, are, are naturally going to be poorer in that respect, which is why you so rarely ever see Klingons laughing in Star Trek. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think one thing, looking at the development of laughter in children, um, you find that around middle school, they begin to take themselves seriously. And when they take themselves seriously, they lose their sense of humor. And so children may laugh between two and 400 times a day. By the time you become an adult, it's down to 10 times a day, if at that. And you realize in middle school, that's why my daughter and I wrote that book, The Girl Who Couldn't Laugh, because she tries to grow up. Her aunt tells her to be sophisticated and to be mature and to, to look ambitiously at what the future has to hold. And it's only when her father brings in a mirror and shows her how ridiculous she's looking that humility overtakes her and she laughs again. And so you're, you're exactly right. Humility and humor are very closely tied etymologically too. You can't help but wonder, at the end, was Susan Pevensey much of a laugher? Had she taken herself too seriously? And the other thing that jumps out at me at the preface that you quoted, Lewis quotes Chesterton talking about the fall of Satan through gravity. I, I was actually thinking of the quotation where Chesterton says that angels fly because they take themselves lightly. Very good, yeah. And, and remember, Chesterton, one of my favorite lines from Chesterton comes when he says, humans are shaken with that beautiful madness called laughter, as if we had caught sight of some secret in the very shape of the universe hidden from the universe itself. And uh, Paul Ward really brings up a kappa element in the Chronicles of Narnia as the planets. But I think the kappa element in all of Lewis, this kind of cryptic secret, is laughter. And when you read anything he's written, even we've observed, you find these elements. It's darker there, but this element of laughter is this kind of secret behind it all. We've had Douglas Gresham on the show quite a few times. And Matt, in the last interview, he asked him, what is it about Lewis that people miss? that you see them missing. And he says that so often when he was writing and speaking, there was a slight twinkle in his eye. There was a little bit of mischief in what he was saying that maybe it wasn't entirely true or there was a subtle mockery going on. Well, let's talk about those different kinds of laughter. So the first one is joy. And so my question to you is, what does screw tape mean by joy? Because it's a very loaded term with Lewis. You know, it means so much more than just simple what we would typically call happiness. And screw tape seems to get some sense of this, but at the same time, it seems to be a, a, an idea that utterly baffles him. He's not sure of its, of its source, its cause, and he can't understand why there is this disproportion uh, when there is joy among people that even the smallest witticisms lead to great laughter. Yeah, wonderfully said. Um, I, I think th th before I get into screw tape's definition of joy, which I think is, is really partly Lewis, but Lewis expands it much more, um, is to get to back to Lewis's basic foundation of incongruity in the human animal. He talks about that amazing oxymoron that humans are spiritual animals. 
In one side, we're spiritual related to angels, the transcendent, the heavenly, the Amish. And on the other side, we're related to animals, to skunks, weasels, toads, and lawyers. And so we find that we're connected to these two worlds and they come together. And that is a wonderful incongruity in the nature of human beings. Um, we find, as he says, dogs don't laugh as angels take themselves lightly for Chester, but dogs don't laugh. Monkeys don't human around. Woodpeckers don't do knock-knock jokes. Chickens don't laugh when other chickens step in chicken stuff. Um, but this, all this kind of coarse humor to him shows us that we are not at home with ourselves. And so then he goes into these four kinds of laughter. And, and as you mentioned, joy is the first thing, which is the highest kind of laughter for Lewis. Uh, we see coming inversely through Screwtape. But he sees it connected to two major things that I think. One is music. There's something about music that transcends, that, that's beyond the rational, that's transrational. And music has a way of just affecting us. Uh, he talked quite a bit about Wagner's um, kind of Tristan Isiel theme from the death theme that is there. And it, I, I forced my students to listen to it because it has this wonderful crescendo, but it never satisfies. And so there's something in this life, we're not gonna be completely satisfied with joy. In fact, Chesterton says elsewhere, it's the one thing that God hid from us when he was on earth. He showed us his anger, he showed us his tears, but he never showed us his mirth because he's saving it for heaven. And, and I think Lewis is saying that idea of music, of crescendo, we're almost there, but we're not there yet. So we are just in the end. The second thing is reunion. Um, to Lewis, a reunion is a time of laughter. Now, when you've seen people you haven't seen for a long time and you just run into them accidentally, the first thing you do is laugh. Why is it we laugh? I mean, they haven't gotten ugly, maybe they have, but they haven't put on too much weight, maybe they have, but there's just the idea of joy, of, of reunion. And so even we find in the last battle at the end, the kids are seeing each other, children are seeing each other, and they just laugh uproariously. They bring out old jokes, but it's the joy, it's, it's the laughter of joy that is there. Um, and for Lewis, heaven is a wedding or it's a banquet, it's a feast. It's never a church service or an academic lecture, even on a podcast. <laughs> That's not even a taste of heaven. It's not a club of good people singing hymns, but it's a harvesting time, a time of romps and tumbles and dancing, eating, drinking, and kind of playing, and especially pints. Um, in fact, you, yeah, as you remember, Dante entering paradise, he's gone with Virgil all the way through, and the first sound he hears when he gets to paradise is celestial laughter, the laughter of the heavens. And, and one of the great things um, that I discovered, because I, I went back from all these people that Lewis mentioned, finally, like Spencer, and everything about Spencer kind of sings praise and joy. You, you praise the Lord. You, it, it almost breaks into Bacchanalian jollity in everything he does. But it's that kind of joyfulness that comes and that joyful countenance, joyful heart uh, that comes. And Lewis, Lewis knew that, I think, of times of reunion with the Inklings, just getting together, sitting in the pub. All of a sudden, you just laugh. And then Hugh Dyson takes over. <laughs> Swearing about Tolkien reading the next chapter from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Tom, Tom Bombadil has gotten short play. We need to kind of revive him. He's a really interesting character. Last season, we did a Tolkien month. And so I spoke to, I think, four or five different scholars or podcasters on Tolkien. They all love him. Uh, I, I, I am of the opinion, I don't get it. But lots of people that I think who know Tolkien far better than me really love him. So I'm just going to try and uh, 
quash my natural cynicism and annoyance at this bizarre character dancing and singing his way around the Lord of the Rings. So I, I've just got him in a holding pattern for the time being. Whenever you're around Tom, you know things are going to work out well. And, and it, it's very much like the Inklings. I think Hugh Dyson was known for his exuberance. I mean, he's the one that basically when Tolkien started reading kind of Lord of the Rings, he goes, oh, F, not another elf. You know, this kind of wonderful moment uh, that is there. And so there's something about Tom Bombadil that's in Hugh Dyson, I think. I, I can't prove it, but it's just, that's why I like them. They're both kind of irrepressible. That's interesting that you spin it in a happy way, because I've read about that incident, and I'd actually apply screw tape here, that humor can be used as a mask for some quite nastiness and cruelty, because because of Dyson's constant whining about Tolkien reading Lord of the Rings, it wasn't read at the Inklings meetings anymore. You know, one of the greatest books of the 20th century. Thanks, Matt. I, I think the way that Tolkien read it, kind of mumbling, I didn't want to hear it anymore either. Let's mm. wait till the book comes out and I'll read it. It's great. So, uh... <laughs> Okay, so we spent a little bit of time talking about joy. Screwtape then distinguishes the next kind of laughter as fun. And he, he describes it as a froth. It's an excess of the, the playful spirit. And when I first read this and when we were preparing for the episode, I was really trying to nail down exactly what he's referring to. Uh, in the end, I... I, I brought it down to just the desire to play for play's sake. What do you make of it? Yeah, I would say in that joy is the serious business of heaven. Fun and play is the laughter of the earth. It, it brings us down close to who we are as animals. Um, you remember in the Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And Eric Liddell in Chariots of Fire, he has that famous line that, I feel God's pleasure when I run. And so when do we feel God's pleasure? When we're playing. What are we playing? When there's certain kinds of work that we really enjoy. Um, or I look at my Anglican prayer book. And after the confession, we pray for our sins, miserable sinners that we are. We are every week. And I need it every week. I need it every day. But after we pray for forgiveness, we say that we may delight in his will. And we, we have forgotten this idea of delight and, and joy and pleasure that is there. God is the great hedonist, as, as we find in Screwtape. I mean, he's someone who wants us. But I think what it gets to is what Lewis would call, and Charles Lamb and others, the quiddity of life, this kind of commonplace, ordinary things that we overlook that are so fun. Um, basically, he says, whatever God sends us, whether it's dismal weather, we need to learn how to enjoy it. Treat it like a romp, like a joke. Uh, as children and dogs do. I mean, they're they're oblivious of all those things. They're they're not concerned about their clothes getting wet or something else. And so we need to see how startling and hilarious weather can actually be. The rain, as Chester said, is God throwing buckets of water on our head when, when we need it. Okay, He's baptizing us. And I, I think of that one moment um, in Prince Caspian where Aslan takes uh, Trumpkin and he just throws him in the air like like a cat. You know, it's just wonderful. I mean, and that's kind of the um, the pleasure of the earth uh, that we see, the fun that is there. And um, Chesterton says, you know, what we need to do is look around and be startled by our world. Uh, it's become too commonplace. For example, he says, during Thanksgiving time, he says, look at turkeys. Turkeys are almost an occult creature. I mean, they're very strange and weird. And if you go and look at a live turkey for an hour or more, you'll discover that the mystery has increased rather than diminished. There's something that is otherworldly about it, almost demonic about a turkey. So that's why we eat it and carve it up. But 
Chesterton looks at elephants. He says, one elephant having a trunk looks odd, but all elephants having trunks looks like a plot. Uh, and so he has this kind of way. And we, so we see duffel pods. Um, they're almost like a Monty Python sketch coming out, uh, kind of vaudeville. And so it's just this kind of playfulness in all bits of life. And children, more than anyone else, know how to play. And when we get down on all fours and the grandchild gets on our back, that's when all of a sudden we discover that we are young again. And that's actually something that Roald Dahl used to do before he would write his children's books. He said he would crawl about on his hands and knees and put himself into the shoes, so to speak, or at least to see from the perspective of a child. Well, that's great. I didn't know that. It's great. <laughs> oh, I grew up reading uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Twits. The Twits was my favorite because it's just that really nasty couple. I think it was a, it was a foreshadowing of my sense of humor that it was going to be slightly dark. <laughs> I, I think it's all British sense of humor. That's that's what you pride yourself on. No. Well, it's true. If you're not miserable, how could you possibly be laughing? Uh, okay, so we've spoken about joy, we've spoken about fun. Screwtape then talks about the joke proper. What did you make of that? Uh, the joke proper, he, he takes more time kind of dividing it up into categories. Very Aristotelian here. Um, it's almost like he has thick and clear soups and thick and clear kinds of jokes. Uh, the thick jokes are animal jokes. They're jokes about sex, about the body and all of those things. Um, the clear jokes are wit. And he has a whole chapter in studies of word on, on even the word wit and what it means. But both kinds are basically good kinds of laughter but they can be twisted, bent, spoiled, corrupted, um, all those kinds of things that he talks about there. But they're created good. And you remember in The Magician's Nephew, where jokes and justice are kind of created together. It's wonderful. Uh, where the jackdaw is there, and he kind of says, no fear, no fear, a little late. And Lewis puts in there that one line that's very self-revealing. Uh, and he says, it's almost as if you had said something loudly at a social gathering. And nobody responded. And you can see Lewis doing this, Jack himself, the jackdaw, kind of uh, making a fool of himself. But uh, the joke is there. And he throws these jokes in, of course, that Tolkien couldn't stand in Narnia um, when he puts like nymphs and their ways in Mr. Tumnus's bookshelf. And he's kind of winking at the adult reader. He says, I've got something for you, too. Uh, just enjoy that. But remember, he's the same bachelor who um, wandered through the country to places like Shapely Bottom. Uh, and he would go to these kind of naughty places. Uh, he was never a really good jokester. Uh, I think that's one thing he confessed. His, his best joke, I think, was um, when he talked about a real-life story of the Bishop of Exeter. And the Bishop of Exeter was giving prizes at kind of an all-girls school. And um, it was a play of Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay, so he's giving prizes to all the girls who played Pluck and Tiana and everybody else. And then he finally announced that he was really delighted because it was the first time he'd ever seen a female bottom. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's great. But for Lewis, uh, I think what I've been reading the English literature uh, in the 16th century, it really pointed me back to many other different kinds of vulgar and um, almost obscene, it makes a distinction, uh, humor that is, is very earthy. Um, for example, uh, Rabelais, uh, he talks about Rabelais in a lot of his writings, and Rabelais would mock scholastic teaching. And, um, and when you look at his kind of gargantuan pantagruel, his, his giant books there, he raises questions that really disgust my students, but I love to kind of bring him up, because he wonders what is the best way to wipe your bottom. And so he kind of poses this. Uh, this is a time before toilet paper is taken off the shelves. 
during COVID. But he says, napkins, tablecloth, pillows, a lady's decorative, a bonnet with feathers, or a cat. He says, but the cat will scratch your bottom, so don't use a cat. He says, the best is a well-down goose. And so you have this kind of idea of wiping your bottom with this goose, this long neck goose that is there. But it always um, reminded me too of the music man. I don't know if you remember that with everything in Kansas City where the chicky ladies come out and they're offended by Mary and the librarian uh, who says that they need to read these dirty books by Chaucer, Rabelais and Balzac. <laughs> and so I, it's just really fun. But as Lewis says, Rabelais still sat in his pew at church. He was an earthy man, he was a vulgar man, but he was fun. And then he talks about people like, um, kind of a shock jock of his era, uh, William Dunbar. William Dunbar was this Scottish kind of debater. Uh, he wrote The Dance of the Seven Deadly Sins, which is really sinister and dark humor. I mean, you would love it. It's very funny of all these sins going wild. But he developed what was known as the art of flighting. Flighting is the art of savage insult. It's kind of rapping, like the dozens, like your mama, okay, uh, the poetic alliteration. And so with this kind of jousting with a, a man named Kennedy, they accused each other of one of being a, a dwarf or being kind of sired by Beelzebub and a mare or not being able to control your bowels. Uh, in fact, the first use of the word shit comes in Dunbar. He's the very first one to use it. Um, but it's very similar to Loki of the Norse myths who mocks the other gods for breaking wind and worse. But what Lewis is saying is the oldest joke there is, is our bodies. And God uses our bodies to make buffoons of us. If we think we are something, he is going to show us that we're not. And so these kind of naughty bits there. Um, and remember, there's a character in uh, Romance of the Rose who really acknowledges that maybe God did create the sexual organs, but he didn't name them. <laughs> and so we probably shouldn't use their names. But I, 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 I point to my students, um, and it kind of shocks them too, but I said, okay, let's look at some of the things that God created about the body, some of the, the juices and the smells, from earwax to sweat to mucus to urine to semen to blood to saliva to poop. All these are natural parts that schoolboys find funny. And so Lewis himself growing up kind of found some of these things funny, particularly when he was writing his friend Arthur Greaves, um, and he was ruminating on Arthur's constipation. And he said, you know, it's probably a really good and convenient thing that you can combine meditation with an emptying of your bowels and save a lot of time. And so Lewis had this kind of schoolboy kind of bathroom humor that was part of the Middle Ages as well. He took that on as well as all the other thought. But it, you, you can see this kind; these jokes can go in two different directions. Uh, even jokes about sex can be good jokes about sex, or they can be jokes that are licentious and leads you just kind of a, as kind of foreplay to sex. But um, I mean, one of my favorite so jokes about sex wasn't Lewis, but um, a little boy and a little girl are kind of comparing their bodies. And uh, the girl pulls up her shirt and says, I have a belly button. And the boy pulls up, I got one too. The boy says, I got one. And the boy pulls up a shirt and he goes, I got two little teats. And she goes, I got two little teats. He pulls his pants down and says, I got one of these. And she looks and she looks and she cries and just goes in the house. Five minutes later, she comes out and she's just beaming. And the boy goes, well, I got one of these and you don't. She said, my mom said, as long as I have one of these, I can get one of those anytime. <laughs> so it's just, but it's a joke about the human body. It's, it's a joke about how we're made, how wonderfully and fearfully and embarrassingly we are made. 
And uh, oftentimes we don't often talk about it unless we're with our kind of friends. Well, then let's talk about the final kind of laughter that Screwtape talks about, which is flippancy. And on Tuesday's episode, we spent some time talking about flippancy and that Screwtape loves it so much because it, it, it doesn't take serious things seriously, which, it, which is kind of a paradox from everything else that we've just said, that part of humor is taking serious things not seriously. But flippancy has a, has a certain potency, a certain power to it that is very destructive because it means that when we don't take serious things seriously, uh, we're inherently irreverent, we're inherently sacrilegious, and that that destroys something within us, a capacity for the sacred, a capacity for something truly good. I agree wholeheartedly. and This is where I become more of a prude. Um, I, I look at something like Family Guy, uh, the television show, uh, which to me is all flippancy. I mean, it takes nothing seriously. South Park, on the other hand, is satire at times. It really kind of can point to things. But there's a lot of this kind of nod and wink and, you know, how cool are we? How hip are we in this kind of inner ring that can, can mock other people? We can mock virtue. And, and Lewis is really going to the heart of that. And, and remember, he said, lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. And the laughter that kind of festers like this, like flippancy, is something that deadens us, deadens our imagination, our ability to, to be kind of connected to other people. Most humor, I think, even put down among men, and we mock each other, is really kind of a bonding at times. Now, you find someone who's, who's sensitive, and you've got to recognize and pull back. Women are much more sensitive to those things, and you can't use it. You've got to be really careful there. But I think this is the sin that marked Lewis more than any other sin. I mean, he saw pride, he saw lust, but it's flippancy that he really writes about. And, and there's this one great poem that he wrote, from all my lame defeats and oh much more from all the victories that I seem to score, from cleverness shut forth on thy behalf, at which while angels weep, the audience laugh, from all the proofs of thy divinity, thou who would give no sign, deliver me. And recognizing basically his own lips are for the destruction of other people's souls. And when he's kind of, and, and we find that too, when we're in a debate and we're able to use our wit to not only kind of defeat our enemy, but to destroy him or her, all of a sudden we have maybe we won the argument, but we've lost a potential friend. And this is what Lewis is getting to, that the soul of every human being is more important than the laugh that we get out of kind of using that. Um, so I, I think it's, it's really important to kind of watch our own tongue. That's why James warns us. Now, I do, uh, Ephesians, in Ephesians, Paul talks about foolish jesting, coarse jesting, and foolish talk. And I don't think uh, he really means as much uh, about kind of jokes that we've talked about, about sex and things like that. Uh, those two words, morologia, is foolish jesting. A moron, logia, the word of the moron. That's the person who denies God. The fool denies God in his heart, and so he's a moron. And so that's kind of, that's flippancy there when you're denying God and making fun of God. Um, the other word is eutropelia, uh, the Greek word, and eutropelia can be defined in two ways. Paul defines it the strange way, which means a twisting of the good. You being good, tropelia meaning twisting or turning. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas goes with Aristotle and defines it differently. Eutropelia for him is a turning of the good. It's a cheerfulness of, of perspective. Uh, but so, but Paul says, whenever we twist the good, 
Whenever we make the good look bad, we are being flippant. We are being evil. And I think we have to attend to that. Yeah. And last season we were doing The Great Divorce. And one of the things we said repeatedly was about what evil is, that it's a twisting of the good, that all of these ghosts that you see in the foothills of heaven, you see that there is some ultimate good that they are searching for, but they're just doing it in such a wrong way. The loves are disordered, either in what they're putting before each other uh, or in the way that they're trying to pursue it. And then we come to Screwtape Letters this season, and that is just the repeated lesson. Screwtape doesn't care if the guy's a patriot or a pacifist. We just got to twist it somehow. You know, he can even keep going to church. That's fine. We can turn him into a Pharisee. Yeah, that's, that's very good. And uh, in the weight of glory, he says, the most sacred thing to us, besides the Holy Sacrament, is our neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we can use jests and jokes in so many other different ways. But when we demean someone that God loves, we have really kind of stepped out of bounds. And we've mentioned Cheston a few times this episode. And he is the guy who I, he keeps coming to my mind because he vigorously debated the atheists of his day. And he was really good friends with them. You know, after the debates, they would go and have a pint together uh, because they felt loved by him, even though he he all of his arguments were dripping with humor. But he managed to do it in such a way that he still loves his opponent. Yeah, very much so. I mean, and um, I, I think there's one true story about him and uh, George Bernard Shaw, the great dramatist, and one apocryphal story. Uh, the true story is that they're on the stage. Of course, Chester is about 300 pounds, and um, Shaw is about 98 pounds, this prissy little Brit, okay, <laughs> that is there, just snotty as anything. And uh, so Chesterton looks over at Shaw, and, and this was a, kind of a real story, and he says, by the look of you, uh, George, it seems like there's a famine in England. And Shaw looks back and says, by the look of you, you're the cause of it. <laughs> <laughs> but the other apocryphal story is, is one of my favorites too, where Shaw was losing one of the debates because he believed in this life force, which was totally different than Orthodox Christianity and Roman Catholicism. Um, and, and he looks over and he's losing the debate. So he goes over to Chester and he taps him on the, the stomach and he says, Gilbert, when it's born, what are you going to call it? Ha, ha. And Chester says, well, if it is a boy, I shall call him John. If it is a girl, I shall call her Mary. But if it is gas, I shall call it George Bernard Shaw. <laughs> and and they, they enjoyed each other. I mean, it was really just the great debate uh, where people would just sit down, as you say, and go have a pint with one another. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you want to say about that letter? Otherwise, let's talk about your books. Uh, let, let me just, uh, one other thing that came out of that, which leads to my books too, but are, are kind of some examples of humor that I find in Lewis uh, that we overlook. Um, for me, first of all, good jests are parables. Um, a good joke can be a parable. And, and I'll, I'll get to that later on too. But there are three kind of moments, I think, in uh, Crowns of Narnia where I find, I just laugh. And the first is Old Trumpkin uh, in the sober chair when he's introduced to useless. And useless? Why is he useless? Okay, why'd you bring him to me? It's just great. And, and the second one is when Puddleglum pretends to get drunk, um, you know, in this in the silver chair. Spectavigle, Mr. Marshwiggle. I know, that's great. And uh, one giant looks at his kind of intoxication, roars with laughter, my froggy, you're a man. Now see him put him away. And he goes, nothing wrong with me. I, I'm not a frog, nothing wrong. I respect the miggle, you know? And so he believes he convinced them all that he was a very funny fellow. Um, but he says that he has to confess, well, it was kind of an act. Most of it was, but maybe I was a little drunk. And that's Lewis coming back in and doing that. 
And so it reminds me too of the, the kind of laughter in that hideous strength where you have um, the company at St. Anne's, the gods come down and they just laugh. I mean, it's just wonderful. Venus comes and it's just, they're, they're laughing. But then at the banquet at Belberry, they, I laugh out loud every time it comes down and you have the Tower of Babel where their speech is confused. And, and Withers going, Bundleman, Bundleman, you know, and Blacho, Blucho. I mean, all of these kinds of things. There's just something hilarious in Lewis's writing uh, that he catches. So let's talk about your book, Surprised by Laughter, because that's what I'm currently working through. Uh, as I was researching Letter 11, I came across your book and I looked at the table of contents and it looked very familiar because here I saw laughter divided into uh, a, a similar four categories. So, so what I did essentially is, is what I've been talking about the whole time is just I took those four categories and I went through all of Lewis's literature several times. And it was it was wonderful reading. It was, it was a baptism into his thought and to be thinking like him and, and seeing like him as much as possible. And so dividing them up was, was very convenient. I just found his fiction, his nonfiction, discursive, apologetic work, his uh, literary criticism, everything. I mean, the one thing that's great about Lewis and his publisher is that he is able to put humor in the midst of his text. Um, I become a little ponderous because my editors have always made, made me take out my jokes. <laughs> I can't leave them in the text. For example, um, the God Mocks book, I had to put them in endnotes. The endnotes are much funnier than the whole text. <laughs> so the text had to be serious to make an argument and be academic. But if you go to the back, that's where it's kind of really, I'm naughty. I kind of play with a lot of things there. But I, I think of just going through and saying, did Lewis practice what he preached? When he identifies these four kinds of humor, these four kinds of laughter, did he actually use them? And I see that he did. And it, that, that to me was just amazing and a revelation and a delight. Wonderful. And, and then let's talk about your other book, which is God Mocks, The History of Religious Satire. And in it, you go from the Hebrew prophets to Stephen Colbert. It, it was, it, this has been one of the enjoyable things I've done. When, when I got fired from Regent University for speaking out, um, I finally ended up Virginia Wesleyan where I had to teach some religious studies classes. So I was called to teach church history. Teaching church history, all of a sudden I found out how much the church fathers and different saints throughout history address laughter, use laughter, um, mock their enemies, and how even the enemies of the church mock the church for good reasons, I mean, different times. And then reading Lewis again, I realized how many different people he mentioned that I knew very little about. And so it would send me back to people uh, that Spencer, for example, I hadn't really read Spencer, and I started reading Edmund Spencer in kind of a group. We'd have a Zoom group with, with uh, meet and read. Um, and so all of these people kind of contributed to my understanding of this whole history of laughter. People say the church has really tried to quash laughter. At certain times it has. During ascetic movements or Gnostic movements, you see laughter being pushed down. Other times you see it exploding um, from Erasmus or Kierkegaard or Chesterton or Ronald Knox. I mean, there's so many great humorists in the church that we forget. Pascal, um, the, the great mathematician, is, is a very funny man. Um, and so all of these people I kind of put in, and I, I brought it up to the present. And after, in, in the modern era, I was trying to think, who is a Christian who is really funny? And this was um, while Stephen Colbert was still on Comedy Central. And I realized he played this kind of folk conservative. 
But when a non-Christian would come on, an atheist like Philip Zimbardo from Stanford University, he would raise him. I mean, he would just mock him. Uh, Westmoreland, a congressman from the South, came on. He wanted to get the Ten Commandments in every court building. And Stephen Colbert said, well, what are the Ten Commandments? Westmoreland didn't know a single one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. And, and Zimbardo basically said, you must, have, you must have gone to Sunday school as a kid. You know all this theology. And Colbert says, I effing teach Sunday school. <laughs> so there's some fun, fun things that uh, Colbert. And I found so many parallels between Lewis and Colbert. They both lost a parent uh, when they were young. They both became atheists. Uh, they both had a radical conversion. They're both outsiders. They're both bullies. Uh, they both use their humor to do other things, but they also use their humor to kind of preach orthodoxy. Uh, Roman Catholic and kind of Episcopal Anglican Orthodoxy. And so the similarities are remarkable um, in, in their writing, in their presentation, in their public uh, persona. Uh, so it was really kind of a delight to just follow them through. I have always been a big fan of Stephen Colbert. I'm a little less excited by his recent work. For me, it, the, 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 the pinnacle for him was when he started the Colbert Report. That was amazing. When he would go and interview guests and he would like cheer and whoop and have the audience cheer him as he's going over. Uh, and uh, those those moments when he's interviewing, I can't remember the author's name, but he b- wrote a book called Why Priests? And he says, God? <laughs> <laughs> or or when he's having a uh, Tolkien smackdown with uh, Franco. James Franco. Put him down. Or you come into my house. <laughs> And in, and in fact, now, whenever uh, whenever I meet someone where we've had a little bit of a tiff before and I felt like I really came out the better for it, I, I use Stephen's uh, expression of, so last time I smoked you like a ham. <laughs> exactly. That's wonderful. And I love, it's almost subtle, but when you see those kinds of, uh, epi- those words come on at the beginning of his program, which is all American, all beef, chiseled, you know, at the end, there's a word that comes on that people don't notice and it's sanctified. To me, it's just, I mean, he is putting it out there, but nobody kind of says, oh, sanctified. Nobody knows what it means, but he's saying, this is part of me. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree with you. Um, his politics have taken over and there's a meanness to him now. Um, and I, I still kind of enjoy him very much, but there's a political meanness uh, to everything he does instead of just saying, okay, how does my faith really inform what I'm doing, asking questions? But he's he, he and Lewis both have these photographic memories, and they're able to kind of read things and then respond. And, and they both do read and prepare for what they think about. Not being a native of the United States, I actually came here and I started watching Stephen Colbert. And when you just drop straight into it, you're not quite sure what to make of it. But I remember the episode where he, where he's he's talking about probably the role of faith in public life or something. He says, you know, it's like, you know, I don't really believe anything. I mean... I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And he he then starts zooming all the way through uh, the Nicene Creed. And I'm just thinking, oh, okay, so he's Catholic. Okay. (laughs) It it takes reciting that every Sunday to to sort of hit that kind of a speed. Nobody else learns that just for a show. Yeah, that's great. Exactly. I remember when I used to go to an Anglican church back in England. Uh, We never said the creed, except the one time the bishop came to visit. Uh, The entire congregation was utterly confused as to what was going on. (laughs) <laughs> That's so funny. That's funny. Now, I'll I'll share some of the the videos that you've put together for basically both both of your books. Uh, and I want to ask you one of the things that you mentioned about the great divorce. 
you spoke about Sarah Smith and you referred to her as being Jewish. And I, I stopped the video as I was watching it. It's like I, I mentally ran back through the text in my head. It's like, no, she isn't. Where, where, where does it say that? This is great. OK, uh, basically, Sarah to me is the mother of all laughter. Sarah is the mother of Isaac. In Hebrew, Isaac means laughter. OK, so Sarah is there and, and she's there and she's from a place. And this is what gives it away from a place called Golders Green. Golders Green, um, in fact, it, right after that, she's celebrated in kind of a Psalm 91. Uh, mm -hmm. Psalm 91 is, is, is part of her kind of celebration. But London, as you know, is a city full of villages. Um, Southall is, was basically Asian during this time. Uh, Notting Hill was mainly Black. Camden was Irish. And Golders Green was also known as Goldberg's Green. Uh. It was Jewish. And so Lewis is put in here in kind of in the antechamber of heaven, this wonderful Jewish, potentially a convert probably, who is coming into the kingdom of God. And she is just celebrated because of her goodness, her cheerfulness, her laughter, her love for animals and for people. And, and so it's really very, very interesting that this is one of the sheep that he allows to kind of graze out there and uh, uh, the author sees when he goes in. And so I, I think very strongly, and Lewis, of course, both Lewis and Tolkien, when Hitler came to power, both wrote letters against Nazi Germany and really were just kind of upset. In fact, uh, the, the Nazis wanted to make sure that everybody in Lord of the Rings was not Jewish. <laughs> and Tolkien said, wait a minute. He said, I wish I were of that race, uh, of that tradition, you know, and I find it one of the most noble, intelligent traditions. And um, I, if, if you try to do anything, you know, you cannot have rights to this. Uh, but Lewis in 33 called out uh, Nazi. He says, this, this is awful. And so in Pilgrim's Regress, one of his worst books, he still has the swastika. Uh, he has these kind of black shirts that are there uh, very early on. And they're, they're kind of warning about what's coming. Hmm. As I, I do... letters started, of course, you know, with him listening to a speech of Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. He says, here's a man who's so persuasive, you know. So what if the devil tried to persuade? And so it's kind of this whole connection um, background. I do like the idea of thinking of Sarah Smith as Jewish, because when we first see her in the book, I remember reading it and I I was I was shocked because it's like, wait a minute, is that? And then I read Lewis's own words in the book. Is that? You know, we're naturally thinking, well, this is the Virgin Mary. So it turns out, no, but it is another Jewish mother. Yeah, <laughs> Jewish mother, I know, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> and is she going to make you a lawyer and a doctor? Yes. <laughs> Terry, thanks for coming on the show to talk about your work. As we wrap up, can you tell people where they can find out more about you and pick up your books? Um, I, th I think probably the best place to find out about me is um, on my author's page at, um, at Amazon and then at Virginia Wesleyan University as, as kind of a faculty page under communication or religious studies. Or on December 21st of every year, I am at a restaurant uh, in Virginia Beach called Bubba's. We have revived a tradition of Alexander Pope. Alexander Pope was about four, nine or something. He had Pott's disease, so he was really short, but he established the Club of Little Men. And so every December 21st, we meet at Bubba's, the Club of Little Men and Little Women. We have shrimp, we have half pints, we have shortening bread, we read Clara Hughes and haiku poetry, really short. We have a meeting under an hour, and then we're gone. We're all short people. My wife can't come. She's 5'10". She played basketball, Virginia Tech. And um, we have normal-sized children, which is the great thing about that. But she can't come to our club of little men and women. And so we've been meeting there, too. So that's one other place. 
December 21st, if you're ever in Virginia Beach. How, how tall mustn't you be? <laughs> I am 4'2". <laughs> okay. I'm a little taller than that. I'm about 5'5". Five five. And so um, I saw my wife at a concert of the Messiah. She was walking down the aisle. She had boots on. And she sat down near me. And I was, I was struck. I was in my 30s, mid-30s. And I said, this is it. Uh, this is the one I've been waiting for. And uh, then we, uh, all the way through the concert, I mean, the Messiah, I'm thinking, for unto us a child is born. So I can see that. And then during the Hallelujah Chorus, of course, we all stand up. And she kept going up and up. <laughs> and my heart just leaped. I mean, it was just, but this is really what I wanted to pursue. And it took a while, but uh, I persuaded her it would work. And so my son now, who's a comedy writer in L.A., is, is about over six feet. And my daughter who is a seventh grade English literature teacher, uh, is about five, ten, like her mom. And so I'm the shortest one in the family, but it's it's wonderful. And, and how tall are you allowed to be to attend these meetings? Do you, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you measure people as they're coming in? It's like, sorry, you grew an inch. We, we've, we've cast people out. Well, fortunately, my friends are all getting older and we're all getting shorter. <laughs> so it's, it's better, but it's about five, seven is we cut off. Is the cutoff. Okay, I'm a little bit too tall for that. Dang. Sorry, yeah. Because uh, I was going to bring a copy of some writings by Louisa May Alcott, you know, Little Women. Yeah. <laughs> or Emily Dickinson again. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But I like that. Maybe, maybe I should start my own group for sort of moderately sized people. <laughs> you know, it's good for everyone to have a home. <laughs> See, I was actually, I was the smallest kid in my school. Needless to say, I developed an inferiority complex. Uh, I like to think that Napoleon had a David Bates complex. It, it, it does things to you being the shortest one, but um, uh, it, was the only, it was the only thing that got me to eat vegetables because I was just told that if I kept eating my vegetables, I would grow. That's great. That's great. I, I've always argued that I think Jesus was 5'5", five, five too. I mean, we all make God in our own image, but uh, people kind of have this Hollywood idea of him as this kind of tall, kind of blue-eyed, blonde hair savior but no he's short and stocky there's a bbc production called son of man where he looks like a longshoreman or a butcher he's pushing people around he's telling the pharisees shut up you know and it's so good it's so real (laughs) (laughs) i often point out that the only only description that we actually really have of jesus is in the prophets and there it doesn't describe him very favorably isaiah says you know there, there was nothing about him that would draw our attention so maybe he was a little bit shorter I like that. I like, I that. like that too. Good. <laughs> uh, as always, we want to thank our top tier supporters, Jeff, Chris, John, Kate, and Rowdy. Uh, please follow us on social media. And if you join us on Patreon at the Silver Level, you can also join our Slack channel for conversations about theology, beer, flowers, and more recently, classic fountain pens. And do remember to wear your Pints of Jack t-shirts, available from the website, at your Christmas dinners as conversation starters, and only drink your Christmas whiskies from laser-etched Pints with Jack glasses. And please join us next time, when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers, cheers. Thank you, David. <laughs>